Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Please listen with care. G'day. I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years... I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learnt about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, an officer who was on the front line of policing as part of the Queensland Police K9 unit. They said, we're in pursuit. I jump in my car, then they start screaming about shots fired. Sean O'Gorman is one of QPOL's most decorated dog handlers. I know dog handlers that have had their dogs killed and it's heartbreaking, something that they probably never really recover from. You'll hear how these jobs and the intensity of the operations affected Sean and how they motivated him to take on new challenges post-policing. Before we get to that, though, we'll hear from Sean when he's in the criminal investigation branch. He's just arrested a particularly violent criminal, one who he still remembers to this day and one who undertook one of Brisbane's most shocking prison escapes. The first time we, I came across him was, I was still a uniform general duties police officer working night work. I was not long out of my first year and there was a random breath testing site set up by the Highway Patrol and this individual, Harold McSweeney, had driven in in a Land Cruiser four-wheel drive utility and had run the RBT site. So he'd just driven through it. So then, you know, the normal standard operating procedure, one of the guys would jump in a V8 pursuit car and chase that person down, normally a drunk driver who doesn't want to get arrested, of course. As he starts chasing this vehicle, un- no idea who the gentleman is driving it, he stops the car, reverses into the front of the police car to disable it, and then takes off and is driving really erratically. So the police car that initially started chasing him eventually breaks down, so we lose him. We're all hunting around trying to find him. Another uniform unit finds him, chase him all through Brisbane for probably 30 minutes, the north side of Brisbane, and eventually trap him in Wilston. It's a suburb that's very hilly. Probably eight or nine police vehicles in the chase. A police vehicle blocked the road in front of him at the top of quite a big hill. He T-bones that vehicle. Then another police officer drove up behind and like rammed into the back of the vehicle. So it was pinned between the two police vehicles. I pulled up behind his car. Him, myself and another officer ran up to the window and dragging this individual out. He was trying to drive away and there was smoke came off the tires, motor revving. So we grab him out. He puts on a pretty good fight. And we eventually take him into custody, put him in our car, take him back to the Brisbane Watch House. Now, again, no phones in those days. So we're at the Watch House and as we're driving back there, I'm a very, like I'm 20 years of age. I'm not a very intimidating or scary individual at at that stage at all. And this guy's in the backseat of the car between the two other officers that I called him with. And I'm threatening him with everything. You're going to jail for the rest of your life, you know, all sorts of things. And he was in all black and he had a golf ball sized raw nugget of gold on a chain had no ID on him, had nothing. And I'm saying, what's your name? He wouldn't tell, just didn't even say a word. And I get back to the watch house and 
you know, I'm threatening him. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to jail forever, blah, blah. He didn't get, and the only thing he answered, I said, what do you do? He said, I collect things. And then the phone rings and the watch house senior sergeant says, who's from this vehicle? It was the vehicle I was in. A couple of the guys at the scene who, you know, we, who I knew very well said, hey, you boys might want to have a look in that car. And I said, oh, what are you talking about? And we look in the car and here is a, an SKS rifle with a shortened barrel. So think of an AK-47 for your listeners. Had a clip, a magazine with 30 bullets in it, a 30 round clip, and it was, the safety was off and it was on automatic. So he had been reaching for that. It was lying beside the driver's seat across the sort of where the handbrake was. And the only reason he didn't get that out to shoot us was that the shoulder strap caught on the handbrake as he was pulling it out. So we had no idea. And back in those days, nobody was very, you know, tactical in the sense of moving up in formation. It was just, you know, you, you jumped in. He then, you know, went to jail, was being held in remand at Bogger Road Jail, which was a jail in Brisbane that uh, has since shut down. It was only a few months later, I was working during the day, working a day shift, and there was a, a call to any available unit code one, which means like it's super rare to hear those calls, to go to Bogger Road Jail, read a mass prison breakout. So we drive over there at a thousand miles an hour. Halfway there, I blow the motor up in, a, in the police car we were in and called a tow truck, put it, the police car on the back of the tow truck, made the tow truck driver go back through red lights, back to the police depot to get another vehicle. And we go back over towards the jail. And as my partner and I are flying into the area, it's in, you know, by this stage, it's probably half an hour later, there was a channel seven chopper because there was no police helicopters with a police officer in it. And they call on the radio that one of the, the offenders was running down a street and they gave the, the, it was Doorknock Terrace and a side street. I'm driving my partner and I, he looks up and goes, that's that street. We were literally at the intersection of that street. We turned down that street and I saw the offender disappear over a fence. So we came screaming down the street and then run into the yard, chase him. And I grab him as he's going up over this big wooden fence. We grab him, pull him back down onto the ground and handcuff him. And then we find out later on that that's McSweeney, that same offender was there. There was five really serious armed robbers, a couple of guys wanted for murder, a couple of other people, uh, another guy, Brendan Abbott, a notorious armed robber in Australia and prison SKP, the five of them had got together and overpowered a guard and stolen the garbage truck and driven it out through the front gate. McSweeney was then on the run for a period of time and there was some information came in. He was in Toowoomba. Group of detectives went up there to find him and ended up in a pursuit. He was on a motorcycle. He fired shots at them, shot another detective who ended up being a deputy commissioner of the police in the, in the hip and then disappeared into the bush and gave himself up to a Channel 7 reporter. It was a guy called Frank Warwick, whose son is a police officer now, because he gave himself up to them because he knew if he encountered police in the bush, it was probably, you know, he's not going to be a great outcome for him. He then went on to escape a third time from the district court and run down Adelaide Street in Brisbane and he'd fashioned a gun out of soap. So he had like cut soap into the into the shape of a gun and painted it black and then had got out and then he'd run down onto this bus and he was holding it at the head of the bus driver and a dog handler who I knew very well who actually was in a prison dog handler had chased him down the street in the middle of the day in Brisbane at the stairs of the bus, dropped the gun, dropped the gun, didn't and shot and killed him on the bus. So he's a pretty serious offender that we thought at the time was just a drink driver, which again highlights just you, police never know what they're coming across. It's it's interesting, isn't it, um, Sean? You you speak of a character like that, Harold McSweeney, and um, you don't meet too many in the job. You meet some, but um, 
you know, you sit in an interview room or even in the back of a troll car with these guys and they, they just give something off. There's something about them. And um, I'm no psychologist, but uh, a character like that would be sociopath, probably borderline psychopath. And they, they're just wired up differently, aren't they, mate? They're just, they just give off something totally different. And the thing that I found with him in particular, but like I dealt with, you know, a number of different people like that. And in the dog unit, you catch them in the, and there's, you know, normally violent struggles or whatever, and then they're handed over to detectives. So I think very much detectives would have more of this experience, but you're sitting, the few of them that I had sort of more intimate engagement with, you're sitting and looking at these people and they look like you, they sound like you, but there is an air in them that is just very, it's chilling. It's probably the best way to put it. And as I'm looking at, for, for instance, that Harold McSweeney in the back of that patrol car, I was looking at him and I was 20 years of age. And I'm looking at him thinking, he is a serious character. There was nothing I could do or say that was going to bother him because he'd been through more than I could imagine at that point in my police career. And the fact I was a police officer meant nothing to him. I'm sure that whole drive in there, he was calculating whether he could get our weapons from us or, you know, I'm sure if he had the opportunity, he would have, he would have killed all three of us to get away. Like that wouldn't surprise me because there was just this calm, chill about the individual that was, in hindsight, when I look back on it, quite terrifying. Sean, the uh, chap that you apprehended disappearing over the uh, the back fence was a, a, an offender by the name of Jason Nixon. What what can you tell us about him? Yeah, mate, he was again a very, like I said, the five of those were very serious crooks. He was a, a young guy at the time, a couple of years older than me. I was only 20, but he was still a very hardened crook. Even when I caught him, he wasn't too concerned uh, or scared of the police. And there was a number of us there. Like I was there, the two of us grabbed him, but there was probably eight or 10 of us there pretty quickly. But he uh, ended up being somebody who was still incarcerated since that day in jail. He's um, been involved in a whole lot of violence. I know he was convicted of at least a couple of murders, if not more, in jail. And when I was recently doing some mental health talks for Queensland Corrective Services at Woodford Maximum Security Prison, I said, is he still here? And one of the the sort of salty old guys my age sort of said, uh, what, like, how do you know him? I said, I caught him. And this guy looks at me and goes, wow. He said, mate, he is a different breed. They are all very, you know, concerned about him. He's, he's somebody that they just don't know. It's probably never, ever going to be re rehabilitated and probably never will get out of jail. And he had, I won't go into detail because it's pretty graphic and pretty challenging, but he had a very, very difficult childhood. I was told later on, that probably indicates why he ended up the person he did with a fair bit of abuse and other things that happened in his background. But he was, uh, again, a very, very violent offender. Sean, can you talk to us about that transition from where you were in the CIB to stepping across to joining the uh, the dog unit? When I was at the police academy in 1989, I was, one of my instructors was a former dog handler and I was um, a bit of a smartass, if the truth be known, at the academy and through my whole schooling. So I was, you know, joking with him and they asked, what do you want to do? And I said, I want him to be in the dog unit. And he said, you'll never make it. You know, you're not good enough. He didn't like me very much, probably with good reason. When I actually applied, there were 43 dog handlers out of 6,000 police. So it was very, very difficult to get into. So there's a part of me that the being in the, in the CIB as a detective was my fallback plan. And once I was there for a very short period of time, I realized it was no fallback plan. I have um, self-diagnosed ADHD, but anybody who's met me wouldn't doubt that for a moment. So for me to think I was going to sit and, and put together briefs of evidence over days and weeks, it was never going to happen. So when I uh, interviewed for the dog unit, there was a lot of applicants. I can't remember how many, and I, and I ended up getting that spot. 
which was, you know, I was so, so grateful for and so excited by. But there was one complicating factor. I was always, I was scared of dogs. And we had had, when I was a kid with my dad, had a reject police dog that we had at our house with my mum and dad split when I was about 12. But it was before that. We had this thing and at my, I was probably seven or eight. My dad wasn't great with dogs. My mum wasn't great. In hindsight, he probably got it because he knew I wanted, you know, I talked about the dog squad so much. So I'm in the backyard at our house in suburban Zulmia in Brisbane with this dog that looked to me to be the size of a horse and it would drag me around the yard and I tried to try and I had no idea what I was doing. I was just trying to control it. And it, uh, we only had it, Rex was his name for about three months. And, um, I think mum, my sister and I am probably dad ended up with a bit of PTSD from that dog, if the truth be known. So by the time I got to the dog unit, I still hadn't cured my fear of dogs. And it's, it's a little bit of a theme through my police career and other parts of my life where I tend to go for something a thousand miles an hour without really thinking it through. So I got there before I actually was in the unit doing my course. I'd go there on my days off. So I went out when I was a uniformed police officer with one particular dog handler who I became good friends with because I literally just pestered him. Whenever I was working, if there was a job where there was a dog handler, I would go to it. Didn't matter what would happen. I remember going to one job and there was a, somebody who crashed a car and run from it. And it, there was really, really heavy showers near the Boodle Entertainment Centre. And I went with this dog handler and we were up to our waist through these mangroves and swamps and chasing this offender. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the best fun ever. And I'd go out of my days off with this individual. I'd go to dog training, like do whatever I could to get in that unit. So when I finally got in, I was so excited. And I went to the, the, the kennels, which were at Kelvin Grove in Brisbane at the time. And the boss was a great guy. I turned up there and he was a very gruff individual, probably about my age now, but he seemed like he was about a hundred. And he said, here's your lead. Here's your chain. This is how it works. That's your dog. Take it for a walk. And Khan was his name, my police dog. And I opened the kennel and I look at this dog and I think this thing's going to kill me. I was terrified. So I took it for a walk around the block at Kelvin Grove. And I wish I had video footage of it because it didn't matter where the dog wanted to go. That's where I went. Cause I was terrified if I stopped it going where it wanted to go, it was going to kill me. And as time went on, I did my course. He turned out he was a very soft dog, beautiful dog, fantastic at tracking human scent, not very aggressive. So he was never going to hurt me. But at that point in time, I thought if this, you know, if I literally, if he wants to go across the street, I walked across the street. If he wanted to go backwards, you know, from where we came, that's where we went. I was the worst apprentice dog handler ever because the dog was running the show. I was terrified he was going to bite me. But yeah, it was a bit of a baptism of fire, but then when you go on and do a 14 week course and you know, you get trained with the dog, it's so much fun. Just on that, Sean, the dog that you get, do you know how they are selected? How old was that Khan when you were given them and, and sort of how, how were they selected? From when it was then till now, very different. I'll give you both. We used to get reject dogs. They were donated. So Khan had grown up with a 75 year old woman who handed him to the police because he used to chew everything and dig holes in her yard. So he was 80 months old. Not, but they were not by any means bred for police work. They were literally just German shepherds that somebody gave up. Now, Queensland Police have a breeding program where they have working line German shepherds. So they are specifically bred. And when they get exceptional, um, they'll have, you know, female dogs that they have for breeding. They don't use female dogs too often for what we call general purpose handling, like patrol handling but they'll have a really good female line dog, which might often be a sport dog, like um, where they do what they call IGP or Schutzhund, which is like biting and tracking for sport. They'll have a really good female and they'll take one of the males from the unit in Queensland or wherever in whatever jurisdiction and they'll mate those two dogs to make them more sort of tip of the spear police dogs. Belgian Malinois are another dog that used a lot in the US and a little bit here. WA use them a lot. 
they're the ones you see with Navy SEALs, you know, jumping in a helicopters and those sort of things. Again, those dogs, they're all very much purpose bred now. So the dogs they have now are exceptional compared to the ones we had. It was a little bit of a, a motley crew of whatever you could get back then and try and mold it. And by 18 months of age, dogs are very much sort of who they're going to be. They now have foster programs and, you know, where people who want to get into the dog unit take pups from eight weeks of age and they train them and they really breed them. So I got some dog that this uh, 75 year old lady who came to his swearing in, which was really nice. And then we try to turn him into a killer who's going to hunt people down. It just didn't really happen as, as well as it should, but that's how they do it now. But back then it was a very different story. Sean, you spoke about that, uh, quite ironically, that fear of dogs. I think I, I read somewhere, you may have said in a previous interview, there was a uh, Part of the training that you did in that 14-week course, which is yeah, eight hours a day training with the dog, there was the bite sleeve. You had to put the bite sleeve on. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's, it was great fun, actually, but I was terrified at the time because you have a protective sleeve that you put on your arm, and that's how you train them to, to apprehend offenders, to abide offenders. Uh, these days, they wear full suits and still use arms and hidden sleeves so the dog doesn't know it's a training exercise. There's a whole lot of methodology how they get the dog's condition. But the first time I did it, these days they run, they call them decoys. They run decoy courses for a week to teach people how to do it. Back in, in that those days, it was literally, I turn up, you know, and they go, hey, you're the new guy, put the arm on, go and stand out there in the middle of the field. And they would send one of the dogs that was trained already, so it was an operational police dog, and it would just run at you. They'd give the command for it to attack. I'm standing in the middle of this field terrified and this, you know, 40 kilo German Shepherd's running at me a full pace. And I'm like, how does it know which part of me to bite? Like, and you've got to sort of feed your arm to it because if you can't get your arm, it'll bite your leg or some more sensitive parts of your anatomy if you're not careful, which has happened many times. So it was one of those things. I had to overcome a lot of that sort of fear to get in the dog unit, obviously. But because it's, it's a job that you work on your own, it's all high priority, high violence policing. There's no paperwork your dog's your partner, your car, gun and dog are at home. You don't really have supervision, which turned out to be a bit of an issue, but therefore it didn't matter what was happening. I was never going to not get through that course. So if they said to me, run naked down the street with an arm and let the dog bite you, I would have done it because I so desperately wanted to do that job. That bite sleeve, when I was thinking about that, when I read that story, uh, Sean, I, it's not a story I tell too often. 85, I was a young recruit at the police academy and they took us, as they often do, you, you'd know this, they take the recruits out to the dog school and there was a hundred of us and uh, I foolishly put my hand up when it was asked for a volunteer and um, I walked up there in the old cadet's uniform and they and they wrapped my arm in uh, carpet underlay, then put the sleeve on and they put <laughs> a big right. trench coat on. And the uh, dog handler was massive. He, he just said, now, mate, just run in that direction and stick your right arm out. And I, and, I, and all the guys are cheering and stuff. And I'm, and every step I take, of course, the German shepherd's taken a dozen. And this thing, and I'm looking over my shoulder and, and, he, and the bloke said, just hold your arm out, hold your arm out. And, uh, and, and mate, you, you've, you've seen this a thousand times. That dog came and it took me by the arm and it took me to ground. And that dog had me pinned on the ground. The only way I could describe how that felt, it was it was like my arm had been put in a vice and it was getting tightened and tightened and tightened. And and without that on, you could see how they could just break break the bone in your arm. I mean, these 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 dogs, when they're trained to do that, they're trained to take you to ground. It's quite something to, to witness as a police officer. Something again, of course, to be on the receiving end of it, because that, they are real weapons, aren't they, when they're when they're trained like that. And there have been many cases in Australia and overseas where people are, are bitten by the dogs 
and they break bones, they break people's arms or, and, and obviously the, it's the use of force model for a dog is just under a firearm in the sense of, you know, they're not deployed mindlessly at all. But when you get to a point where someone is that violent that, you know, oh, many, many jobs I've been to as a handler and, and with other handlers, you know, backing them up where you will turn up, there'll be six or seven or eight police officers and an individual who was extremely violent, who does not care about the police. But the minute you pull out the police dog, they go to order and give up. And you normally find out later that they've had a fight with the police dog and lost. And then, you know, they don't care about police, but they're terrified of the dog. So it's actually quite a leveler and quite a, a great tool to de-escalate violence in some regard, because it, you turn up with the dog and people go, oh, I'm not going to fight them where they're, they're not scared to fight six or eight police. And you must, uh, you know, it's that, that bond. I mean, anyone who has, you know, pets, be they dogs or whatever, you, there's a bond that you have with them. But that, that's next level, I guess, uh, in the police, uh, those dogs that you work with and the jobs that you go to, um, the, the bond that you have with them must be quite incredible. They literally save your life. Like it sounds very dramatic, but, you know, I had so many instances where we were, you know, I'd catch offenders that were, you know, lying in bushes or whatever, who'd have firearms on them and the dog would go in and bite them. And were they going to shoot you? Who knows? But, you know, people, again, like I said before, if, if you turned up on your own, then people were reasonably willing to fight police, like, you know, what we would call good crooks in those days, like violent criminals. But the dog would save your life. Like I so many handlers that I've spoken to around the world now, who will reach out to me or I've seen, I've been to the States a few times and spoken to dog handlers with mental health and things. And they'll just say, oh, you know, I had this job where, you know, if it wasn't for my dog that, you know, I'd be dead. And police dogs, particularly in the States, get killed fairly regularly. Queensland police had one probably three or four years ago, a dog called Chaos, who they caught an offender and the offender stabbed him multiple times. And he lived and he's retired now living with his, his handler, who's, a, who's an exceptional guy. If it wasn't for that dog, would that have been a police officer that was stabbed? Quite possibly. And and the really difficult part for people to understand, I think, is you love that dog like it's, you know, they are your best mate. You spend eight hours a day with them. But at the end of the day, their life is less precious than a police officer. So they are often used, if need be, to be put into that extremely violent situation. So obviously you're going to give the dog's life before a human's life. But that's a very, very difficult thing. And I know dog handlers that have had their dogs killed and it's heartbreaking, something that they probably never really recover from. Sean, if we can fast forward to 19... 19- 94, there was an incident that you were involved in in the Brunswick Mall downtown Brisbane. Can you walk us through that job and and then we can perhaps have a little bit of a chat about the impact that it had on you moving forward? It was April 1994. I was just standing talking to another dog handler at a service station just about whatever and there was a call came on the radio that was a V-car urgent from this vehicle. It was a detective's car and it was about 11 o'clock on a Monday night and they were screaming on the radio, which you don't often hear. As I got in the vehicle at the service station, they said, we're in pursuit. I jump in my car. Then they start screaming about shots fired. So the offenders had opened up on them with a weapon shot out the window, the side window of the car and were firing multiple rounds. So I've driven extreme as fast as I could possibly go, 120, 130 kilometers an hour through the valley. And I went out through the top of the mall at pace and went down Brunswick Street towards New Farm, towards the river. At one stage, I looked, I was doing 140 kilometers an hour 
as I went past the village cinema, which is on Brunswick street and I was accelerating because I'm trying to get to these cops and help them. Obviously that's the, the last call you want to hear. I pulled over and stopped waiting for them to go past so I could turn around and get on the back of the chase. And as they went past me, there was a guy sitting on the windowsill of the ute with the rifle on the roof, firing shots back at the police. And as he turns and he fires three shots at me and he was literally a car width or two car widths from where I was, missed me, missed the car. I was terrified, but I was also really angry. There were seven cars in the chase. I did a U-turn and by the time we got the kilometre or so down towards the mall, I'd gone from seventh to second. I overtook the other six police cars, got to second in the chase and I'm trying to get around the first car so I could get up to these guys and perform the pit manoeuvre and I thought I'm just going to ram them and run them off the road because my fear was if they get to the mall with a firearm, they could murder innocent civilians. Like it was lit, it was a terrifying circumstance, but I couldn't get past the first police car was swerving backwards or forwards across the road. I thought at the time the police were playing games, trying to stay in the, the first pursuit position, but it was literally because they were being shot, shot at. So they had 24 rounds in the, in their vehicle, got to the top of the Brunswick street mall. The offenders went into the corner too fast, crashed their vehicle. A big light pole fell. The uniform car got through. My car got caught up on it. And the offenders were jumping out of their car. This all happened in half a second with the rifle. So two offenders, one rifle. They start running down the mall, pointing the rifle at me, pointing the rifle at the other uniform car. So it ends up just being the two offenders, uh, male and female uh, uniform officers who were in the initial pursuit vehicle, and then me on foot because my car was crashed. So I jump out of my car. I don't remember getting out of it. One minute I'm in the car looking at these guys with a rifle. Next minute I'm out with my uh, pistol in my hand running down the mall chasing them. Totally forgot to take Khan with me, which he would have been handy in that circumstance. I'm running down the mall and as I'm looking, these offenders keep turning around and pointing the weapon at me and there's not a lot of places to hide. That's good cover. And in my mind is screaming, like just go the other way, like run away. But obviously as a police officer, you can't do that. I'm chasing these guys down the mall and I couldn't take a shot because always behind them in the sight picture that you talk about when you take, when you fire a weapon, there's people in the background. They might've been a block away, but if I miss these offenders and kill an innocent person, obviously, you know, that's the last thing you want to do. So they pointing the rifle at me, they didn't fire, thankfully, but chased them down around the corner. And by this stage, there's probably a dozen or 14 police cars. I've come around the block. They're coming from everywhere, wrong way up the street. And again, it's on Wickham street, ironically, where, where Khan got picked up. It was not far from there. And they've stopped under an awning and the offender who was the driver, we find out later, had the weapon, but he was pointing it in, in the air. He hadn't actually pointed it back at me at this stage. I had my pistol out and what's called single action, like ready to shoot. And I'm walking in on him, screaming at him to put the gun down. And I had the side picture on him. If he dropped the gun, I was going to shoot him. And there's all these other police sirens, everybody screaming. It's absolute mayhem. This guy looks around, looks me dead in the eye, puts the gun under his chin and pulls the trigger, shoots himself. He hits the ground. It, everything stops for a you know 0.2 of a second. It's silent. And then mayhem breaks out. I'm moving in on the second guy, screaming at him, get on the ground, get on the ground. He bends down, grabs the, the rifle, puts it in his mouth, pulls the trigger as he's standing up. And I'm a few meters from him, shoots himself, hits the ground. I run over to him, kick the rifle into the street. And he had a big jacket on and he sat up, put his hand in the jacket I think he's going for another weapon. So I put my foot on his shoulder and, and, you know, slam him into the ground with my gun at his forehead and he dies. So he's obviously, it's like the last throw, like a death throw. So blood comes out of him. I turn around. There's a, a, a detective was um, standing over the original offender at gunpoint. And he's got blood obviously coming out of him, out of his wound. 
And I remember standing there just thinking, what do I do now? So I walked back up to the mall, go back and get my car with Khan in it because the car's still there, keys in it. Like I hadn't taken the keys, I locked it, it was running with the dog in it. So I go back up, get the car and um, come back down with Khan. I, I used to smoke at the time. So I was had about a hundred cigarettes while I'm driving back, like just obviously pretty severely impacted. And then we went and did, you know, walkthroughs with the homicide squad and interviews and all of those sort of things. It went for hours. So it was, I finished about 11 a.m. the next morning. And then I went back to my dog unit, to my office and my senior sergeant, my boss, who was a great guy. And I said, I've just been at that job in the Valley. And he said, what job? I said, well, the job where they tried to kill us and, you know, shot themselves. And he goes, I didn't hear about it. He said, who approved your overtime? And that's something I never forgot. Now, not because that individual was trying to be nasty, but to me it was, I'm expecting people to be, hey, mate, like, not you're a hero, but like, you're a hero. You're a great guy. What an amazing job. You did a great job. And he's like, who approved your overtime? And I, um, we had word. He was a, a former Golden Gloves boxer, a very tough man. So he had words. Well, I wasn't going to fight him, but we had words. I slammed the door and got in the car and I drove home. And as I'm driving home from that job, I ring, rang my dad and I said, what do you do? Like, couldn't sleep. You know, it's probably two in the afternoon. And he had been in a shootout with someone where he had to take someone's life. I said, how do you deal with this? What if I didn't take a shot and they killed a police officer? What if I, you know, maybe I was a coward. Should I have gone harder? There was a whole lot of fear and doubt that I'd done the right thing. And so I said to, to my dad, I said, mate, like, how do you deal with this? And he goes, no idea. If you find out, let me know. Because he was still very impacted and he's been diagnosed with PTSD post his career. But it was even talking to my dad who'd been through the same scenario. He didn't have the answers for me. And that really was, you know, when I look back at it, the other stuff that had started dripping into the bucket is the way I describe it to people. You've got a bucket you carry around your life and the stress accumulates in that bucket. Things would be dripping in, whether it was shootings and McSweeney's and car chases and all that stuff. But that job had such an impact in such a short space of time that it filled three quarters of that bucket in one incident. I never gave a statement for that job. And so for your listeners, police officers will give statements as to the occurrence and their observations to go to court. So they, you know, the one guy died, the, the second guy died, the first guy who was the driver actually lived and went to trial. I didn't give statements, which wasn't unusual, but I avoided that job like the plague. I didn't go to debriefs for it. I didn't give statements for it. And at the time I justified it to myself it wasn't out of a fear response. I was like, oh, that job's done. I don't want to do paperwork or blah, blah, blah. But if I'm honest with myself looking back, I was terrified to go near it because of the impact. And if I would talk, like I'd have a, you know, a hundred beers and three in the morning, I'll be with my mates telling war stories and I'll be starting to talk about that job. And a number of times I'd be in tears with good mates of mine and they're like, what's going on? And I'm just, because the alcohol loosens up that fear, like the impact on me was quite significant but I didn't have the courage to put my hand up for help because in those days, no one did. So that was sort of, that job was pivotal in that start of that mental health process that ended up with me being diagnosed with PTSD a few years later. I can still hear the emotion in your voice and talking through it. Um, it's impossible not to see you and, and hear that emotion. And um, you've been very honest also in talking about some dalliances with drug use and that type of thing. And this is the road that you went on following this incident, but you were, you were still in the job for quite some time after that. Yeah, mate. So I was still in the job for seven years after that. And one of the biggest things that impacted me and what I really want to get across for your listeners that are police officers or people who want to be police or military for that matter, 
I do a lot around mental health for police and soldiers and, and other people now. But one of the things I really want to get across is that everybody in these jobs has impact. You can't be a police officer or a soldier or nurses, doctors in emergency rooms, firefighters, any first responders, whatever. You can't do that job and not have impact. And the thing that really affected me at that time was I thought I was the only person because as I would turn up to very, you know, I've been in a lot of other jobs with guns and a whole lot of other things. Like I did a work with our SWAT team and all sorts of stuff. And any of these extremely violent jobs I went to, and I went hunting them because I loved that. That's what I wanted to do. But any of the jobs I went to, that one included, it's not like we sat around at the end of it and went, oh my God, that terrified me or I'm really impacted by that. We all just had that mask and it's a mask that police officers wear, soldiers wear, and people wear where I was just, people go, you good? I go, yeah, of course I'm good. That's what we're here for. And it was very much you diminish and downplay that, Im- that impact for fear of looking like a coward. Sean, you, you've become a, uh, an extremely passionate advocate for speaking out about uh, mental health as you are here on on this platform and um, particularly its impact that it has on police and particularly those police who leave the job as you did and carry so much of this with them. You're involved now in an organisation called Strong Life Project. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The Strong Life Project as a business for me is a way now, I lost my opportunity to impact people and help them as a police officer. I was in the corporate world for 15 years in commercial property. And I, I joke often that I met more psychopaths there than I did in the police because it's more about money than it is about impact. And it was something I struggled with immensely. To have this platform now in the Strong Life Project where I get to help people, I do you know high performance coaching for CEOs and business owners and workshops around culture and leadership. So I'm doing a lot of stuff with air traffic controllers at the moment, for instance, and corporates. And I do a lot of stuff in my business that is about helping normal, in inverted commas, people. My passion and my hobby is cops and soldiers. I'm very fortunate now to live a life 20 years post my career. I've done so much work around personal development. I always say I've been to every hippie, you know, caftan wearing, happy clapper, burning incense and doing hypnotherapy and I've done it all because I just wanted to be happy. And at 53, I'm divorced. I have some challenges with my daughter's mum, so I don't see them as much as I want to. I certainly don't have an easy life, but I'm happier than I've ever been in my life because I do the work now to get to that point. And really, if there's one message I can leave your listeners with, police or other people, is if you're not happy, the answer is do the work. I've written a book about this stuff, about my journey through the police stuff. I've written a couple of other books I haven't published yet because I'm just passionate about trying to help people to understand that I want to be the the Jenny Craig version of mental health, where before I was the person who was quite overweight in a mental and emotional state, very self-destructive, as you said, drank heavily, had a pretty good hit out with cocaine for two or three years after I left the police. And then my daughter was born in 2005 and I actually sat in the delivery room, looked at her and thought, I've got to get my shit together. And since then, it's been not a linear process to get to this point, but it's absolutely possible. Sean, the Blue Hope Walk is coming up for yourself. I think there's 15 former possibly currently serving police, 15 coppers. It, it's a it's a walk through the Kokoda Trail. Yeah, there's an organisation in Queensland run by um, two very good friends of mine started eight years ago. One of them is a current serving detective sergeant still in the police with 30-something years service. Another one is a former AFP um, special agent. And he is uh, now has a doctorate in psychology and does psychology specifically for police officers. So we're going in May 
with the three of us and um, 15 cops. And they will be probably current serving or recently retired police who have had some mental health impact. The organisation is Blue Hope. Bluehope.org is their website. If your listeners want to help police officers with mental health, these guys do a fantastic job. Please go and donate to their website. I don't, I'm not taking, like, I'm not getting paid to do it. The benefactor is, is footing the bill for half of it and we are paying for the other half for ourselves and the police officers will raise that money. The big thing to me is cops have got to take responsibility for themselves to get out of this. And this, you know, hopefully this uh, walk to the Kokoda trial, we can actually, you know, use that as a way to really push this message even further into the community because I think the community needs to get behind our police because without them, you know, it's mayhem. Sean, you're the first dog handler that we've had on on the show, and I want to thank you uh, so much for for taking the time to come into the Brisbane studio and have a chat. Also, for shining a light on that area of policing, you know, the the canine unit, which uh, it does tend to go under or below the radar, if you will, and it's not all that well known about, and and I'm sure a lot of folks who will listen to this will find your insights into that um, really, really interesting, and just want to thank you so much, mate, for, for your service. Mate, thank you, Brent. I really appreciate it. Police officers who listen, thank you all for your service and thank you for what you do. I think it's immensely important. And for you, Brandon, for your team, thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. It's something I'm passionate about and I think it's something we need to be talking about a lot more for our police. So thank you. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, Produced by Ed Gooden and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.